You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning, church family. Try again. Good morning, church family. There we go. All right. We're ready for a new year. I'm glad that you're here this morning. It's good to see you. Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. We had a great Christmas in my family. We enjoyed a wonderful week of rest and of celebrating. Um, The big present in our home for Christmas this year was a ping pong table. And so that's what I've been up to all week long, other than prepping this sermon, playing a lot of ping pong. And if you're wondering, I am undefeated currently. So, So challenge accepted. If you want to come over and play some ping pong, let me know. We had a great Christmas. Hope you did as well. And man, I am so excited as we begin a new year to jump back into the gospel of Mark. And so if you don't have your Bible open to Mark chapter 10, I want to encourage you to do that, to go ahead and get to Mark 10, whether it's in your physical Bible or on your phone, grab your worship guide that you received on your way out. There's spaces there to take notes. You can take notes even in our Redeemer app. If you have the app, you can open up the sermon there in the app and start to take notes. I'm excited to jump back into the gospel of Mark and eager to learn from God's Word. Um, If you were with us last year, we spent 28 weeks last year in the Gospel of Mark. I don't that might feel like a lifetime ago, but we were in Mark from February to August of last year. And this morning we are picking back up in Mark right where we left off um, uh, in August. Uh, Starting in chapter 10, we're going to follow Jesus through the last six chapters of Mark, we're going to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. He's making his journey now into Jerusalem where he will bear his cross and he will claim his crown. And so we're going to walk with him moment by moment, week by week, leading up to Good Friday and Easter. And I am excited to be in Mark. My hope and my prayer has been for us is that as we get back into the gospel of Mark uh, in 2023, that we will come to see that Jesus' cross, Jesus' death, his crucifixion, and that Jesus' resurrection, his crown, his, his lordship as king, those two things, his cross, his crown, his death, his resurrection, that we will come to see that those two things are the most significant, the most important, that when we make those, those things the most central things in our lives, that we truly, truly live. And so that's my prayer, that we would see his cross, his crown as the most significant truth, not only in all of human history, but we would make it the most defining reality in our life. And so let me pray for us, and then we will jump back into our study of Mark. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we gather on this first day of a new year, we honor you as Lord. We thank you that you are risen and reigning and that you are Lord over all. And though times change and seasons change and calendars change, Lord, you remain the same. You are faithful. You are God. You are constant. And so as we open your word this morning, as we get back into our study of the gospel of Mark, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes, that it would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you, God, would help us to see you for who you are, that your words, God, we wouldn't just hear, but we'd have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to receive, that you would use your word in power to conform us more into the image of your son, that if there's anyone who's here today that doesn't know you as Lord, that hasn't crowned you as king, that they would have eyes to see you for who you are and all of your beauty and all of your grace and all of your truth and all of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Let's pause for a minute. This is a good spot to do a bit of a recap on what has happened in Mark chapter 1 through chapter 9. Mark tells us here at the beginning of chapter 10 that Jesus is on the move, and he's moving toward Jerusalem. This is where all of uh, the gospel of Mark is taking us. This is where Jesus' life and ministry is taking us to Jerusalem. In the first nine chapters of Mark, we see Jesus doing miraculous, remarkable things. Mark gives us Jesus' life and ministry uh, in a unique way. Um, a, bit of a, a bit of a background on Mark, in case you forgot or you weren't with us for the first part of our study. Mark is the first of the four gospel accounts to be written. And Mark's source is Peter. Most scholars agree that this is really Peter's gospel. Uh, Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, and that, that, that Mark was a secretary, and he traveled with Peter. He was a, um, a, a, a translator of sorts, a, a transcriber of sorts for Peter. And so we're getting Peter's eyewitness account, and, and Mark, Mark's gospel hits. It's punchy. It's almost like um, a sports center top 10 highlight reel of Jesus' life and ministry. And so we get this in chapters 1 through 9, this kind of punchy, fast-paced highlight reel of Jesus' most remarkable moments, of his teachings, of his miracles. Mark uh, shows us Jesus bursting onto the scene, his supernatural baptism, where the heavens open up and the, the voice of God speaks and the Spirit descends and empowers Jesus' ministry. And then we see miracle after miracle, Jesus healing the blind and the sick and the lame. Jesus is doing miraculous works. It's almost as if heaven is breaking into earth, as if God has come. We see Jesus teaching with incredible authority, discerning hearts and minds. And this question is building through the first nine chapters. Who is this man? Who is this man? Mark asks this question over and over again. Even Jesus' own family is trying to figure this out. Who is this man? And when we get to chapter 8, that question gets answered. Jesus asks his disciples, he asks Peter, who do others say that I am? And then he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? He says, you're the Christ. That answer gets uh, that, that question gets settled. You are the Christ. You are the King. You are the Messiah. You're the promised one. And then in chapter 9, Jesus, almost um, as a way just to kind of prove that point, we get the transfiguration. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up the mountain where he shows them his divine nature. He shows them his glory. And the result of Jesus on the move, of Jesus' ministry, has been this remarkable fame that has built. And so Mark tells us in chapter 10, verse 1, that he's moving, he's on the move, headed toward Jerusalem, and that the crowds have gathered to him again. They're, they're gathered again. The crowds are following him again. As he makes his way toward Jerusalem, the point is, his momentum is growing. And as his momentum is growing, so are the expectations of the people. The Messiah is here. He's the king. And where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem. What's he going to do in Jerusalem? He's going to claim his crown. You've got to remember that the Jewish people were under Roman occupation. And so their king has come. Their savior has come. Freedom is here. But Mark tells us, Jesus, the crowd is growing. The expectations are growing. Jesus is on the move. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But what is he doing? What does Mark say in verse 1? He's teaching them again. He's still trying to help them see, help them 
understand. With every step of the journey, Jesus is seeking to give us understanding about his true nature and his work, his purpose, why he has come. He's trying to cut through all the noise and all the misunderstandings of what he's come to do. He's trying to help them see the enemy isn't Rome. The enemy is Satan and sin and death. I'm not here to free you from occupation. I'm here to free you from the tyranny of sin and death. Herod isn't the enemy. Satan and sin and death is the enemy. In fact, Jesus has told them twice in the first nine chapters of Mark that he will suffer and die and raise again. If you look at chapter 10, verse 32, just look at it in your Bible, look ahead. He's going to tell them for a third time why he's come, what he's going to Jerusalem to do. Suffer, die, and be raised again. And so in all of this, in all of this, depending on the kind of eyes that you have to see, the kind of ears that you have to hear, you either see Jesus, you're starting to see Jesus for who he is, God on the move, or you start to see him as a threat. You start to see him as a threat. Did you know that the same thing is still true today? Did you know that that same thing is still true today? Not many people will debate you on the existence of Jesus. I've never met that person. I've never met that person. In fact, I was having a conversation with one of, my, uh, one of my sons the other day about Jesus and about people who don't believe in Jesus. And I said, buddy, it's not like people don't believe in Jesus that he, that he wasn't real. It's not like, you know, is Batman real? Is Superman real? It's, it's not like that. Like nobody debates you that Jesus exists. Is he real? In fact, most people won't even deny his works. Most people won't deny his crucifixion or his resurrection. The people that don't believe in Jesus, the thing that they reject is not, was he real and did he do remarkable things? In fact, most everybody, even people that reject Jesus, thinks he was a good man and a remarkable teacher. What people reject is his lordship. That's what people reject. They reject his lordship. They don't want to make him king. They don't want to crown him as king. They don't want to take a knee and give him allegiance of their life. Even, even, in fact, nominal Christians, religious, half-hearted religious people, the reason that they are what they are is because of this lordship problem. I, I like God, and I like spirituality, and I like religion, but the reason that I'm nominal or I'm half-hearted is because there are parts of my life or things in my life that I don't want to give Jesus lordship over. I, I want to hold on to some power and to some authority. These are people who feel like they have good handles on their own lives, that they don't want Jesus interfering with their little world and their little kingdom. They have all the wisdom and all the resources within themselves to rule their own lives. They have their own pleasures and their own interests that they want to pursue and want God to just kind of be their sidekick. It's a lordship problem. Why is this important? Well, as we get into Mark chapter 10, we're going to get three scenes in a row where King Jesus, who's on his way to Jerusalem to claim his crown through cross and resurrection, he's going to bump into a few people along the way who have lordship problems. They like Jesus, but they're not willing to make him lord. And the first we'll see today in the text are the Pharisees, people who love their own wisdom. They like religion and spirituality. They like God. They're not anti-God. They're not anti-God of the Bible, but they're not sure that they want to make Jesus Lord. They love the comfort and the pleasure of their little world, and they don't want anybody disrupting it. 
Then second, what we'll see next week, Jesus is going to bump into the rich young ruler. He wants to follow Jesus. He, loved, he, he, he loves the law and the commandments. He's followed them. But he also loves his possessions. And he loves worldly things and material things. And Jesus is going to call him and going to expose his lordship problem. And then we're going to see, even among his own disciples, James and John, people who want power and status, and they're looking to Jesus or religion or spirituality to help them on their own pursuit to greatness. And Jesus is going to call all of this into question. So this is the context, and these are the things that we should be asking ourselves as we read Mark chapter 10 over the next few weeks. We should be asking ourselves, where am I in these scenes? How might I be like these Pharisees? How might I be like the rich young ruler or Peter, James, and John? I want to invite you to hear Jesus' words in this way as we walk through this text. And it starts with the Pharisees. Look back at Mark 10, verse 2. The Pharisees come up to Jesus in order to test him. And they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Interesting question. What's this all about? Well, we first need to ask ourselves, why are the Pharisees coming to Jesus? Jesus, his crowds gathered. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's teaching certainly about the kingdom of God, what his kingdom is like and what it's going to be like when he claims his crown. And so they come up and they ask this question, why? Are they coming to Jesus, uh, 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 coming to learn? Are they coming to Jesus in devotion to him as king? No, it's right there in the text. What does Mark say? Why are they coming to Jesus? It's New Year's Day. We can talk back. Why are they coming to Jesus? To test him. Yeah. They're coming in order to test him. In fact, they are setting a trap for Jesus is really what they're doing. This is important. We need to understand the significance. They're setting a trap for Jesus. Since chapter 2, the Pharisees have been trying to discredit Jesus. They've been trying to establish themselves as the authority, as his fame has grown and the crowds have grown. They've entered in and they've been trying to test him and see if they could get him to make a mistake or slip up so they could discredit him and that they could be the wise ones. They could protect their comfort and their status and their way of life and their religiosity. Um, but it hasn't worked. In fact, it, it kind of reminds me, I had a neighbor once who uh, had an armadillo problem. And um, and, you know, you can think of it this way. His house, he, they planted all these flowers in the front yard. Kind of his domain was cute and perfect and everything was in order. And this stinking armadillo at night would come in and would tear up all of his flowers. Ugh! So replant the flowers. And guess what happens? Here he comes again, messing up my domain, messing up our comfort, messing up my beautiful front yard. And so he's doing everything he can do. He's setting traps here and here, but it didn't work. The armadillo continue to continue to get in there and mess things up. And so finally he told me, here's what I'm doing. I'm setting out my game camera. I'm staying up, locked and loaded at night. And when that thing comes back, boom. In a way, now I'm not comparing Jesus to an armadillo. All right, I'm not starting the new year doing that. Kind of am. In a way, that's what's happening here. Jesus has come in and he's messing up the comfortable little world of the Pharisees. And they've been trying to trick him, but their little tricks haven't worked. And so now they've gotten serious. They're locked and they're loaded. They are trying to kill Jesus with this question. And you say, Jordan, how do you, how do you know that? Where do you see that at in the text? Well, here's what you have to remember. You need to know the backstory. Remember, the Jews actually have a king right now. 
at this time in the, in the text. They have a king. What's his name? Herod. Their king's name is Herod. And the scriptures tell us a thing or two about Herod. One, we know that from Matthew chapter 2, that when the news came that the Messiah was born, Herod already tried to kill him, right? Remember that. But Herod has also killed other people, namely John the Baptist. Does anybody remember why John the Baptist, what was the reason John the Baptist was arrested and then eventually beheaded? Does anybody remember what it is? It's in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we're told what happened. It says this, for Herod seized John, bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her or marry her. You see this? See, John the Baptist was not only proclaiming that Israel's true king was coming, but in his proclamation that the king was coming, that the Messiah had, was, was here, he said, Herod's not your king. Herod could never be our true king because his marriage to Herodias is unlawful in God's sight. He, he had his brother's wife divorce his brother unlawfully so that he could marry Herod. And John the Baptist, this gets him killed. This gets him beheaded. Now do you see the trap that they've set? You see how they've locked and loaded here? Maybe if we could get Jesus to slip up, say some things about divorce, we could take it back to Herod, and Jesus is gone. He's out of our hair. He's out of our little world of religious, spiritual comfort. He's not messing up our little flowers anymore. But Jesus, of course, can smell a trap a mile away. Look at verse 3. He answered them, What did Moses command you? This is wise. Somebody setting a trap for you? Always answer the question with a question. What did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Interesting, their response. They essentially say, Moses allows for divorce. It's right there, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Moses says that it's okay for a man to write a certificate of divorce if he finds some problem with his wife. And they're, they're right, it does. Deuteronomy 24, we get specific case law that does allow for a divorce in certain circumstances. But here's what we need to understand. There's a difference between case law and God's moral law. There's a difference. See, God's moral law, think the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not worship other gods and bow to idols, thou shalt not steal. God's moral law are absolutes. God's moral law is about God's design for human beings. God's moral law is about how life flourishes and works best when we let God be not only our creator and our designer, but our governor. When we live under his rule and reign, submitted to his will, we flourish. Case law, like what's in Deut Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament, is more circumstantial. In fact, it's usually given when God's people have broken his moral law and there's like a clean up on aisle nine situation. And so this is kind of how you clean it up or make the best of a busted and broken circumstance. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is about. Deuteronomy 24, where Moses is allowing for divorce, is about, hey, God's people are abandoning the covenant anyway. They've already broken God's law. They're making a mess of families through divorce. Here's the, the healthiest, most orderly way that God's people can continue on. 
Hence, the reason that they need, Moses says, a certificate of divorce. There was an orderly process to it, designed specifically to protect vulnerable women from exploitation. We can talk more about that if you're curious about that. We can talk more about what was happening. It had to do with dowries, where men were divorcing women, marrying someone else to collect another dowry, and then divorcing them and going back to the other wife to try and collect another dowry. And he's saying, no, no, stop this. And so we can talk more about that if you're interesting. But th- this, is, this is the context. And the Pharisees in this, this text, what they are for us, is that they're an example of what so many half-hearted, religious, nominal people do. They play games with God. They take God's word and they pick and choose regardless of its true intent in order to suit their own desires and to fit their own agendas. I know what God's word says about drunkenness and alcohol, but you know, it also says that we should be you know, merry and fellowship and have fun, and so whatever it might be. This is what religious, half-hearted people do. And Jesus is making it clear. Jesus is saying, listen, I haven't come here to debate case law with you. (laughs) Here's what I've come here for. I've come here to get us back to God's original design. I've come here to restore humanity back to God's intent. I've come here to redeem and restore men and women. Look what he says in verse 5. Jesus said to them, It's because of your hard-heartedness, because of hardness of heart that he wrote this for for you. He's talking about the case law. It's because of your sin that this law even had to be created. He says, but from the beginning, God's intent, God's design, God's plan for men and women from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus takes them back to Genesis, God's word in Genesis. Jesus says, the father's will is clear for men and women. Marriage is between one man and one woman. And it isn't just a partnership for the sake of our happiness. And we can kind of discard a spouse here or there whenever they're no longer meeting our needs. He said, that's not, that's a worldly view of marriage. He says, marriage is a union. It's a union, no longer two, but one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus, Jesus says, he points them back to the words of Genesis. Here's what Jesus is doing. Listen, marriage is just kind of the example. They could have asked him about anything else. But marriage is the example. It was the trap they set for him to try and get him killed by Herod. Here's what he's doing. He's exposing how far they've actually drifted from God's very heart. Religious people. Do you hear me? People who are in church on New Year's Day. How far they've drifted from God's own heart. Yet, they think they're the spiritual ones. Even in Jesus' day, Even in Jesus' day, divorce, it had become normalized. They've drifted so far from God's heart, and they're just, you know, divorce and divorce and divorce had become normalized. And the spiritual leaders are saying, well, as long as they follow Moses' case law, it's fine. But Jesus says to them, it's not fine. It's not fine. In fact, the fact that you think it's fine reveals your true heart to God and, and toward God. 
It reveals why you need a true savior and why you need a king. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to invite them to see their hard-heartedness. And then at the end of the text, we'll get there in a minute, he's going to invite them to repent and to come into his kingdom, he's going to say. He's going to invite them into his kingdom. He's going to invite them to lay down their own lordship and make him lord. Come into my kingdom, he's going to say. But I think it's important for us while we're here in the text, while we have a text in front of us about marriage and about divorce, I think it's important for us to have that conversation for a second. See, there's a lot of married people in this church. Praise God for that. Singleness is a gift. Paul makes that clear. And so it's not, you're not a second class citizen in the church or in the world if you're not married. I want to be clear about that. There's dozens of other sermons that we could preach about singleness and the significance of singleness and the calling of singleness and what that means for you and the opportunities for you. But this is a, right here in the text, we have a text about marriage and there's a lot of married people in this church. And so I wanted to say this, listen, what Jesus is pointing us to when he takes us back to Genesis is the high and holy view of marriage that we get in the Bible. Marriage is a sacred thing. In fact, I, after prepping this sermon, I just made a pledge. Next wedding I officiate, I'm going back to using the old lingo of holy matrimony. We're welcome here today in this moment of holy matrimony. Because it is, it's a high and holy gift that we are given. It is not something that we should ever be casual about. See, marriage is a gift that God gives to men and women. It's filled with great spiritual significance. Marriage is like a beautiful and delicate treasure that we've been given by God, one that we should treat with great honor and great respect and great care. If you are married here today, will you hear that? Do you view, are you viewing your, did you, did you get out of bed this morning and view your marriage that way? It's something that you ought to treat with great honor and significance. One that you should nurture and cultivate as holy before the Lord. I want you to imagine for a moment if, if you were given one of the finest gifts that you could imagine. I don't, what would that be for you? One of the finest gifts. You probably didn't get it for Christmas this year. What would that be for you? Maybe for some of you it would be your dream car. And you were just given this dream car. How would you treat that car? You would probably study the owner's manual you would, so that you could take care of it the way that it was supposed to be take, taken care of. You would maintenance it. You would polish it. You would wax it. You would protect it from the elements. You would drive it the way it was supposed to be driven. So if it was a sports car, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd get the RPMs going on that thing. Or maybe for you, it's not a car. Maybe it would be this, the, the most luxurious, beautiful jewelry on the planet. And if you were, if you were given the, the queen's jewels as a gift, how would you treat it? What would you do with it? You would protect it. You would nurture it. You would polish it. And when you wore it, you would, you know, you would let it shine in all of its beauty. That is the gift of marriage. That is the gift of marriage. It's been given that you ought to nurture it and protect it and care for it. Hold it up highly. That it might be on display for others to see its beauty and its power. See, this is the design of God for marriage. Yet for so many people, it's just become, like it was in Jesus' day, normal to have a low view of marriage. Marriage isn't received as a high and holy gift. Instead, 
For many, marriage is a means to our own fulfillment. Whether we would say that or not, we often live that way in marriage. And we think that when it stops fulfilling us, that we need to discard a marriage for a new one. And Jesus says in verse 11 and 12, look back at it. Jesus says, when you do this, you commit adultery in the eyes of God. When you do this, you sin. If a man, he says, divorces his wife and marries another man, or if a woman divorces her husband and marries uh, another man, you've committed adultery. You've sinned. And I know that there might be some people here who would say or would think, yeah, but, but listen, I, I, we've just gotten to the point in my marriage where I've, I've just fallen out of love. And Jesus would say to you in the text today, Jesus would say, no, you haven't. You've fallen into lust. That's what you've done. Or maybe you would say, well, okay, I hear you, but listen, I've just changed. I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago. I'm a different person than I am today. And Jesus would say to you in the text, yeah, you, you are. But the change that I'm most interested in is conforming you into the image of Christ through your marriage, in your marriage. That's the change that I'm interested in. Maybe you are here and you feel like your spouse just doesn't meet your needs emotionally. Your spouse doesn't meet your needs spiritually. And if that's you, I just want you to know that I grieve that with you and for you. That is not God's design or plan for you in marriage is for a spouse to be distant or absent spiritually or emotionally for you to feel abandoned in that way. That is not God's plan for you. That is not God's design for you. But the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages you in that situation. He says, I don't command it, but I encourage you to stick and to stay, Paul says. To stick and to stay. He said to pray for them and to love them and to show them the grace of Jesus Christ as a means of witness toward them that you might win them back to Jesus. Not just to run to someone else. You see, why, does, why is this the case? Why is this what Jesus would say? Why is this what God's word says? Well, because marriage is about covenant. Marriage is a gift, the Apostle Paul says, which teaches us about God's love for us as his people, a love that no matter what we do or no matter our circumstances, his love never stops, his love never fades, his love never runs out for us, it always pursues us and it chases us. His love is present for us even when we don't feel it. He doesn't abandon us when we change, but he's with us, he's faithful. Marriage also, by God's design, is a gift that gives you to hear me. Marriage is a blessing that blesses. It's actually not about you. It's not about you. It's a gift that gives. It's a a blessing that blesses. Part of God's design for marriage is is even uh, uh, as as married people bear children. Being able to love them and nurture them together as father and mother, teaching them to love God and to walk in his ways. As we do this as Christians, families, I mean, communities and societies are blessed. What does divorce do to families? I don't have to tell you. Many of you lived it as you grew up. Even single people that are here in the room today, you you know how what a blessing strong and healthy marriages are and what they can be. And you also know how the consequences of divorce can ripple. That's why Jesus, that's why the scriptures say in Genesis, and Jesus quotes what God has put together, let no man tear apart, let no man separate. Now, it's important that we understand the beautiful high view of marriage and we stay committed to it. 
between man and between woman as Christians. But I do want to say, in light of all that, I do want to be clear. There is, there is, there's still circumstances where God permits divorce. There's still circumstances where that's the case. Jesus, in this same text, in Matthew's version of this gospel, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, Jesus says that, uh, he, he says adultery would be one of those reasons. Abandonment would be another one of those reasons that we, from, we see from 1 Corinthians 7. would be abandonment. Certainly abuse. You know, the hope would be that in all of these circumstances that there would be repentance and change and reconciliation that would happen. But sometimes, I can tell you this as an experience as a pastor, that doesn't happen. And so there are still uh, times where divorce can be permitted. But again, that's not God's design for us. And nor does he command it, nor does he delight in it. One final word on marriage and divorce before we zoom uh, back out and get back to the context of Mark chapter 10. Um, if you are married people in this church, I just want to say this to you. Your pastors here care about not just you and your church attendance. We care about your marriage deeply. We care about your marriage. We want your marriage to be beautiful. We want it to be like a vineyard that's growing and bearing fruit. Now, every marriage will struggle. Every single marriage will struggle. Every marriage will go through ups and downs. Every marriage will have challenges and trials. But just because your marriage will struggle doesn't mean that your marriage has to struggle in isolation. And so I just want to encourage you, let us know how we can pray for you and resource you and counsel you in your marriage. In fact, this year we are, we are putting significant resources into marriages in this church. In the spring and March, we're having a marriage retreat. And I cannot encourage you enough if you're married to sign up and to be a part of that marriage retreat that weekend. We think it's important. We think it's significant. We want to sow into, we want to see thriving, life-giving, fruit-bearing marriages in this church. We think that if we do that, it will have generational impact for the kingdom. And so it's something that's important to us. And we just want to encourage you, come walk in the light in your marriage. Don't struggle in isolation. Okay, let's zoom back out. The trap was set. Jesus doesn't fall for it. Instead, he reveals that he isn't the one who's the problem. He isn't the one who is the troublemaker. He, in fact, reveals that the problem, he says in verse 5, is hard-heartedness. That's the lordship problem. Hard-heartedness. What is hard-heartedness? Well, it's the inability for us to tune our hearts to God's best for us. It's, it's the inability for us to walk in God's will and in God's ways, to obey God's law because we think we know best, or to make concessions for breaking God's law because we think we know best. That's hard-heartedness. To think that we possess the wisdom and power to call the shots in certain circumstances, that we think we can be our own king. That's hard-heartedness. But the reason that Jesus has come is to offer us a new way, to offer us a way out of hard-heartedness, hard-hearted living, fake religiosity, nominal spirituality. He's going to go on and he's going to give an invitation. Look at verse 13. Look at how this text ends. It's interesting, isn't it, that Mark gives us this scene of, so Jesus is with the crowds, Pharisees ask him, they set the trap, ask him about divorce. Uh, he kind of uh, blows up their trap, it doesn't work. Um, the disciples ask him to expound more on what he meant about divorce. Jesus does it. He's very clear about divorce. And then we get this scene of the children coming to Jesus. And Mark gives it to us all in one setting. It's interesting. Look what he says. 
Mark 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was very angry. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Why does he give us this scene? Well, one, I think it's because it happened in this order. I think that's first of all why. But I think it's significant. Think about how this section of Mark begins. It begins with Pharisees. And how do they come to Jesus? They come to Jesus proud. They come to Jesus in power, puffed up, hard-hearted, thinking that they know best. And then how does the scene end? It ends with children coming to Jesus. And how do they come to Jesus? They come to him powerless. Children were the most powerless people in antiquity, often discarded. They come to him powerless. They come to him pure in heart. They come to him eager, not hungry for power, but hungry for what? Blessing. They're coming to him to be blessed by him. And Jesus says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such belongs the kingdom of God. Not the person who's trying to rule their own life, call their own shots, twist and manipulate God's word, live for their own passions and their own pursuits and sprinkling Bible verses on top. Not that person. That person doesn't enter the kingdom of God. That's the person that Matthew 7, Jesus stands before them and says, depart from me for I never knew you. And they said, but I did this in your name and I did this in your name and I did this in your name. Jesus said, I never knew you. How does one enter the kingdom of God? What does he say? Verse 15. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying hands on them. You want to know what's the antidote to hard-heartedness? It's humbly coming to Jesus for his grace, desperate for Jesus, dependent upon Jesus and on Jesus alone. Do you want God's blessing in your life? Do you want 2023 to be a year where God like breaks through those strongholds, those deep-rooted patterns of sin, the stuff that you keep saying, I'm not going to do that anymore, but then you keep doing it? Do you want that in your life? Do you want God to awaken your marriage that feels dead? Do you want God to do a work in your children? Do you want that in your life? What does Jesus say? He says, if you want that blessing, if you want me to touch you and bless you, come to me like a child. These aren't games with God. Jesus is clear. Listen, if you want God's nearness in your life, he says, come to me humbled and pure in heart. Change your posture. See, when we come to Jesus like this, like a child, pure in heart, listen to me, church family, he will not, he cannot deny you. He won't. It's the reason that he goes to Jerusalem. It's the reason that he bears the cross. It's the reason that he suffers and dies and raises again to claim his crown so that those who come to him pure in heart, humble and needy, he can touch and he can bless and he can change and he can welcome into his kingdom. Listen, church family, I have one hope for us in this new year. One hope that we would learn together day by day, week by week, what it means to come to him like children. 
that we would increasingly live more and more dependent upon Jesus, that we would grow more humble than ever, more hungry than ever, more desperate for God than ever this year. And in doing so, that God would touch us as a church and that he would bless us immensely. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and all of your power and all of your might. We do thank you for your truth, even when it's hard to hear. We thank you for your truth because we know that your truth always comes with grace. For you came in truth, full of truth and grace. We thank you that you made your way to Jerusalem, that you suffered and that you died for hard-hearted sinners like us, for strugglers like us, for people who struggle with lordship like us, for people who struggle in marriage and singleness like us. And would you teach us, Lord, to stay needy and humble before you, dependent upon you, desperate for your grace. As we prepare to respond and as we come to the table, we ask, Holy Father, that you would nourish us with your body and your blood. That you would renew us in spirit. That you would give us a hunger for your word. That you would revive our zeal to obey you and to serve you at all times and in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.